Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Uh, if you could turn in your Bibles to... Uh, John 21, which is my, if, if you've been in church for a while, our church, this is my favorite passage uh, in the entire Bible. And I could preach, and I know you would totally want this, but I could preach probably four years just straight out of this text. Um, but it's a beautiful text, and uh, I'm going to uh, give it just a little bit of context, but we're in our Lent for the People sermon series. Hopefully you've been blessed. How many have been blessed by this series so far? So three weeks ago, we talked about giving up in patience. I will never preach on patience ever again. I had to be patient for about 35,000 times that week. Uh, and then last week, we talked about, it's a, it's a made-up word, but we talked about giving up unforgiveness. So making sure that we don't allow any enmity. Everyone say enmity. Any enmity, enmity to get between us and our neighbor. And so this week, we're going to be talking about giving up. Are you ready for it? How many are ready for it? Come on. How many are ready for it? We're going to give up comparison today. So how in the heck are we going to give comparison up? Chris, isn't woven, isn't comparison or that proclivity to compare myself with somebody else, isn't that woven throughout my human fabric? Uh, yes and no. And uh, Jesus gives us an answer to how to defeat comparison in our lives. So we're going to begin in John 21, beginning in verse 15. And uh, John writes, when they had finished breakfast, this is post-Easter world, Jesus has now appeared, uh, is, is revealing himself to the disciples for the third time bodily. And uh, this is what I love about uh, this strange post-Easter world. Uh, God doesn't annihilate the universe uh, God doesn't give his disciples like in a primitive spacesuit where they fly up into the sky. Scholars call that vertical eschatology. Don't worry about what that means. But what I love about this strange, beautiful world of Jesus is that the first thing he does is he offers breakfast to his disciples. And if you like breakfast for breakfast, and if you like breakfast for lunch, and if you like breakfast for dinner, and if you like breakfast for a midnight snack, and if you like breakfast at 3 o'clock in the morning, and if you like bacon and more bacon, come on, and pancakes, and a lot of coffee, and a lot of waffles, and if you like a lot of cream, and if you're feeling sick to your stomach right now, I totally get it. But if you like breakfast, can I get an amen to that? So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus offered them, well, offered them fish and chips, and then Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I, I talked about this first service. I can't do that this morning because of time, but we'll, uh, we'll talk more about this in the next several weeks. And then he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He uses the word phileo, which is a friendship word. It's a good word. But Jesus said, do you agape me? Agape uh, in this first century context was taken over by the early Christians, which they used it to represent Jesus-style love. So Peter, he says, yeah, I, I can't quite agape you. Um, he's overwhelmed with inadequacy, but he says, I phileo you. Um, have, you ever, have you ever had someone, um, have you ever told somebody that you love them, and then they respond by saying, yeah, I kind of like you too? It's a little bit defeating, but I, but I love Jesus. Jesus is confident, and uh, he won't be unnerved by this conversation with Peter. Remember, Peter a couple days earlier, denied Jesus three times. So he said, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said that to Peter. And then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Again, I think Peter is just, he, he realizes his love for Jesus is incomplete. It's imperfect. It's inadequate. But the good news here today is that even though uh, our love for Jesus is incomplete and imperfect. God is perfectly perfect in his love for us. John 13, 1 says that Jesus will love us to the very end. Verse 17, and he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus uses the word phileo. Jesus is now coming down to, to, to Peter's level. I love this. Comes down to Peter's level, basically saying, hey, okay, Right now, you can't get to agape. That's okay, um, because I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to give you fresh work to do. And one day, Peter, you'll get to that point. I love how Jesus meets us 
in our inadequacy and in our incompleteness. So Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, right? He's exasperated. If you're a parent with children, you understand exasperation. So you know that's a bad joke. You know that I love you, Peter said, and Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So he's giving him fresh work. Jesus is giving Peter fresh work to do. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you. And verse 19, carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Could you say follow me? Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This, is, this gets comic. Maybe it's tragicomic. The one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So Peter wants to know what's going to happen with uh, his best friend, John. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Now remember, Jesus has now just scripted Peter's life, right? This is, this is Peter's story. He's given like a glimpse, given Peter a glimpse into his future. He said, this is how you're going to die, right? How many of you would like Jesus to do that to you? No, right? You're supposed to laugh at that, okay? No, it's just, it's kind of a weird conversation. Why would Jesus give Peter a glimpse into to how he's going to die and he's going to die in a horrific way? Well, I think it's, it's a way to bring healing to Peter's overwhelming sense of inadequacy. Remember, his greatest fear is martyrdom. Jesus says, hey, you're going to become so invincible that nothing's going to shake you, not death itself, because my love is going to fill your life. And I'm going to give you the task, this, this beautiful job of running or leading and serving and pastoring the church. So Jesus said to him, if it is my will that you remain until I come, what is that to you? What is that to you? You follow me. Everyone would say, you follow me. So what, what, is, what is Peter doing? He looks over to his friend. He's just been told that he's going to die in a horrific way. He, he now knows that he's been forgiven by Jesus. Let me just say this really quick. Without forgiveness, we don't have any future. Like if Jesus didn't forgive Peter, I don't think we would have had the New Testament. And if we didn't have the New Testament, I don't think we would be worshiping here this March, whatever the day is. I think it's in 2017, right? Are we in 2017? We wouldn't be worshiping here celebrating the achievements of Jesus if Jesus did not forgive Peter. So forgiveness is about your future. Can I get an amen to that? Peter now has been given a task, uh, a job to, to lead, to serve, to pastor. He now knows how he's going to die, and he looks over to John. And I think this is my translation. I think Peter's like, hey, um, Jesus, can you make sure that John dies like me? Get, and if, if, if that's like, if, if you haven't scripted it that way, could you please make sure that it's at least as horrifying as my death will be? Obviously, what's going on is Peter's comparing himself with John. And comparison in the kingdom of Jesus is the, is the opposite of how God's brand new world works. A couple weeks ago, my son Wesley, he, uh, he came up to Kel and I. We were actually in the car. We were driving home. And he said, Dad, who, who out of us three, who do you love the most? And so, and he's persistent. If you know Wesley, he's a stubborn little bugger. Thank you for your prayers. He's, re- he's repented for most of his psychopathic behavior, so he's on his way following Jesus. But he's still a little bit stubborn. So for, probably for a good 10 minutes, he's like, Dad, Mom, who do you love the most? And, you know, he said it with a smile on his face. And we kept on saying, hey, Wesley, we love Wesley, Quincy, Whitney the most. And we said it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, and, you know, in that moment, my son's really competitive, and there's nothing inherently wrong with competition, and all those who love competition said amen. But this is more than just competition. I know what Wesley was doing. I don't like to psychoanalyze my kids, but I knew he was trying to justify his existence or measure his worth by how much we loved him versus how much we loved uh, his, his brother and his sister. So, we, we spent about 10 minutes trying to convince all the kids that we loved them, you know, uniquely, right? And then probably five minutes went by after this 10-minute span, and then I hear in the back my son Wesley try to mimic my voice. He goes, Wesley, 
I love you the most. Gosh darn it, you little bugger. Quincy's crying and Whitney is throwing a fit. They're like, Dad, I'm like, that's not my voice. He's, he's building his self-worth, right, by, by competition, by comparing himself with uh, his brother and sister. And I think we do this all the time. I think this is what Peter's doing with John. I think we evaluate, measure, uh, we quantify, or we try to justify our existence uh, by uh, other people. Uh, or even by maybe the scripts that we try to construct for ourselves, And come on, Jesus doesn't play that in his kingdom. It's poison. It's funny. My kids are obsessed with poison. I don't know why. Maybe they learned this at school, but they think like apples. I mean, they like green apples, right? So they love green apples, but they, for whatever reason, they think the browning on the green apple, if they see any brown, it's poison. So they won't touch it. They must get that from uh, my wife, their mother, right? But, uh, yeah, they, they, they just, they're obsessed with poison. I think if you want to talk about poison in the kingdom of Jesus, if you don't want to find fulfillment, if, if you want to collude with uh, the corrosive properties of human corruption, the one way you can do that is by comparing yourself with somebody else, right? We do that. We do that all the time. Uh, we, and, and the, the danger of comparing yourself with somebody else is, man, it leads to, if you're not careful, it leads to a chronic sense of inadequacy. Come on. I mean, we preach about it all the time. But when you, in social media, when you see somebody post something, like they're at a crazy concert, and you really like their skinny jeans, and you're like, man, how did you, like, dress that way? It looks amazing. And all these people are saying wonderful things about them on their, like, Instagram posts. If you're not careful, if you're measuring yourself or you're building your worth through uh, competing with somebody else or comparing with somebody else, it can lead to this chronic sense of, I ain't no good, right? And then you start just colluding with that country song. Like, I ain't good. My wife's ain't, you know, ain't good. My kids ain't good. My dog's sick. Uh, everything in my life is upside down. It's wrong. And we start to, to play or partner with this sense of inadequacy, all because we're comparing ourselves according to a wrong standard. So it's dangerous. To compare yourself with somebody else is dangerous. But it's also indulgent. What do I mean by that? Well, it's indulgent because you can also compare yourself with somebody that you think you're better than. And it can lead to an inflated sense of self. So some of you are overwhelmed with this sense of inadequacy. You just don't think you're good enough. Stop it. The reason why you don't think you're good enough is because you're playing to a wrong script. Some of you, though, have indulged this weird fantasy where you think you're better than everybody else. And you have this inflated sense of self. You're also playing according to the wrong script. Jesus, his answer, his solution to comparison is you follow me. Jesus is essentially saying, hey, I have the script for you. I have the story for you. Man, I've, I've crafted it. I, I want to frame your life. I, I've created this world. You are a free and authentic being. I'm not going to force you to do this, but I want to persuade you that I know what I'm talking about, right? That when, when uh, Jesus says to Peter, come and follow me, he is saying, hey, I want you to trust me. I want you to reorder your whole symbolic world, your life, your schedule, how you think, how you feel, what you do every single day, your vocation, your sense of self. I want you to reorder it around how I think about you. God's script for your life is the most important thing. See, here's the thing. Man, I can't sing like Laramie, right? I wish I could. What's that one song I used to always sing? I believe I can fly. See, horrible voice. I believe I can touch the sky, right? You don't want me singing on a Sunday. I can't sing, but for whatever reason, I love philosophy. Like, God, I don't know why God made me a redhead. He did it for a reason. I don't know why I'm not six foot five, but I'm 5'11 and three quarters. Shane Grove, I'm 5'11 and three quarters. 
I don't know why I'm that size. I don't know why I like the things that, that I like, right? I can't sing like Laramie. I can't, I'm not going to take you on a fishing expedition down the Snake River like Mike Barth could. He's amazing at that. If I took this church down the Snake River on a boat fishing for little fish, right, it would lead to our death, people. So there are some things that I can't do. And there's some things that you can't do. And what happens is, if we compare ourselves with somebody else, we're going to play the wrong script. If we're playing the wrong script, we're going to play someone else's life. And if we play someone's else, someone else's life, we lose ourselves. We lose ourselves. We lose a sense of purpose and direction and joy. I know this is like slapstick, dumb rhetoric, but God does not bless the fake you. He's designed you in a very specific way. From the color of your skin to the color of your eyes to how you think, even the fact that you might dislike broccoli, which is holy. Your idiosyncrasies, come on. God crafted that, even down to the genetic, your genetic makeup. God has designed all of that. You are fearfully and mostly wonderfully made. And this is where we come, and I'm going to get back to this text, but Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, I obsess over this. This is the call story. Yahweh comes to Mo. Let's call him Mo. It's Moses. We'll call him Mo. And there's this interesting conversation. Mo is objecting to the call of God. He doesn't want to go rescue uh, God's people because he just... Again, he's overwhelmed with this chronic sense of inadequacy. And so here we have in verse 10 of chapter 4, God has like outlined, okay, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to empower you, Mo. And he says, but Moses said to the Lord in response, oh, my Lord, I am not an eloquent man, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. He has a speech impediment. Then the Lord said to him, I love this. Who's made man's mouth? That's a weird way to, who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Man, there's a lot of theological import in this text. God then responds, is it not I, the Lord? And then we come to verse 12. Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So there's two senses that are conveyed in this, this conversation between Moses and the Lord. The first one is God is saying, hey, don't worry about your speech impediment because I made the mouth and I could give you the words to say because I'm the ancient of days. I've been around a long time and I've invented language and I can give you by my power and my spirit what you need to fulfill the call of God on your life. You see, God will give you all the resources you need to fulfill the script that he has for you. But the stronger sense in this call story is that God is saying to Moses, hey, Mo, everyone say, hey, Mo, you are exactly, including your speech impediment, as I intended you to be. Let me say that again. You are exactly how I intended you to be, minus the human corruption, because that's your fault. Come on, all your idiosyncrasies, all the things you think are weird about you. I think God is saying to Moses, hey, man, don't play that game. Don't collude with that kind of that overwhelming sense of inadequacy because those idiosyncrasies have been placed in your life by me. And maybe some people don't like them, but I love them. So, Chris, I love how you do your hair, right? It's God talking to me. Don't judge me. Like, Chris, I love how you talk philosophy on a Sunday morning. I remember like five years ago, I got up and shared something, and no one said amen, and no one did anything. No one encouraged me. And I remember went, I went home, and I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, that was my favorite message you ever spoke. I can't live by human opinion. You can't live by human opinion. You can't live by what you're just your dad or your mom 
or your friend or an uncle or, or someone in your past has said something or spoken over you. We don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He scripts our life. Man, he's in charge. He's in charge. So the solution to comparison uh, is, Jesus makes it very clear, hey, Peter, stop focusing on John and come and follow me. Trust me. Know that I have a plan for you. Know that I have a plan for you. See, this is anti-post-modernity talk. Some of you are like, Chris, what in the world does that mean? Post-modernity is a philosophical movement. And basically, post-modernity has relocated ultimate authority in the self. So no, we, we, we no longer, check this out, we no longer believe as Americans, or at least in the Western world, that authority is extrinsic or somewhere outside of us. There's no realm of moral objective facts about what it means to live a genuine human life. We don't believe that anymore. We believe that ultimate authority has been located or is located in the self. So you'll, you'll hear talk like, I, I'll choose what I want to be. I'll choose what I want to do. And when we come to the kingdom of Jesus, it's an altogether different story. Authority is not located in how we feel. Authority, ultimate authority, is not located in, man, the choices that we make about ourselves. Like, we could create false scripts about ourselves, but if we're designed in an altogether different way, those scripts, they're not going to lead you into fulfillment. They're not going to lead you into joy. They're not going to lead you into the peace that only God can give you. But if you want to think biblically as you follow Jesus, ultimate authority is found in Jesus. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. That word authority comes from a Greek word, exosia. Exosia simply means out of the original stuff. We actually get our English word author from this word, this Greek word. Author, what is Jesus saying? I'm the author of what it means to be human. I'm the author of what it means Come on, to experience joy and, and true peace and true righteousness. He's the ancient of days. If, you're, if you like to play football, imagine you're at the combine and this scout who's been scouting for 40 years comes to you and everyone in the football world, in the NFL, agrees that, and there's consensus, that he knows all things about football. And he comes up to you and he says, hey, such and such, we'll call you Johnny, okay? So Johnny, hey, you, man, I just got to tell you, you're an elite athlete. I believe in you. I've been scouting for 40 years, and I think you can make it in football. And let's just pretend that maybe a couple, man, after you're done with the conversation, a couple minutes pass, and then this scout that hasn't been around for maybe a year or two comes up to you and says, hey, you know what? I've been scouting for like a year or, or two, and I just, I, I just, I got to be honest with you, I don't think you have what it takes to play football. You then have to make a decision. Am I going to trust the guy that's been around for a long time? Or I'm going to trust maybe this guy who's just getting to figure out what football is all about. Right? And what I think many, many followers of Jesus, and I think what Peter's doing here, I think what we all tend to do every now and then, it's actually more than every now and then, we do this a lot, is we actually make a decision to follow what someone, let's say, who's been around for 15 years, says about us, and what they say about us, we give them ultimate authority, and tragically, we allow someone other than God, other than God, to say something definitive about who we are. We do that all the time. And I think as followers of Jesus, we need to listen to the football coach or the football scout that's been around for 40 years. Can I get an amen? God's the ancient of days. He perfectly loves you. He loves your idiosyncrasies. And he has a beautiful plan, scripted plan for you. So this is where my philosophical mind goes. How do we... How do we strip down comparison? What is it? If we were to strip it down to his roots, 
you would find two things about comparison. The first thing is when you compare yourself with somebody else, the Greeks called it, you're now engaging with hubris. We call it, Americans, we call it good old-fashioned pride. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said, uh, pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive. Now, you could compete and not be proud, but pride is essentially competitive. And then he goes on to say, is that, hey, people are not proud of having something. They're only proud of having more of it. People say that people are proud because uh, they're rich, they have affluence, they're attractive, they have achievements. Jesus, or excuse me, C.S. Lewis, not Jesus, C.S. Lewis says that's actually false. People are proud because they're richer, they're more clever, they're more attractive than someone else. So if you were to deconstruct comparison, why do we compare ourselves with other people? And you were to strip it down to its roots, what you would find is pride. That's why we compare ourselves. That's why we're trying to justify our existence is because at the bottom of it all is we are really proud. And here's the thing. When you're, and wh- wh- why is pride so bad? God makes it very clear that God gives grace to the humble. So why is it that God gives grace to the humble? Well, here's the thing. If you're looking down all the time at people and things and stuff, and as long as you're looking down at people, things, and stuff, you're not going to be able to look above you. You're not going to be able to see what God sees. And you're going to create or construct these scripts about your life that go in the opposite direction of what Jesus has scripted for you. See, pride actually turns you in on yourself. Martin Luther, uh, 500 years ago, you hear me say this probably every, every, every other week, defined the, the root cause of the human condition. And the Latin phrase is homo incurvatus in se, which is humans curved in on themselves. The reason why we compare is because we're curved in on ourselves. And when we're curved in ourselves, we can't see that perfect love. We can't see the script that God has for us. This is important for us to under, are you, are you I, I hope, am I, do I have an angry face here today? Okay, I'm sorry, I'll smile a little, <laughs> smile a little bit more. No, it's, I, I think it's important that we understand that if we want to wither the root of comparison, we got to undermine pride in our life. So pride also uh, works with, and this is the second thing, if you were to strip down uh, comparison. Comparison at its root is also all about ingratitude. So pride and gratitude form the sine qua non of comparison or the essential framework for comparing ourselves with one another. This is why Jesus said, hey, Peter, Don't compare yourself with John or with anybody else because it's a form of pride and hubris and it's it's a form of being ungrateful. Now, let me just say this really quick. Um, Jesus, he redefines success. He redefines power. He redefines status. Jesus makes it very clear, man, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And when Peter gave and trusted this, this work, fresh work, to Peter, he said, feed my sheep. Jesus made it very clear in John chapter 10 that the shepherd, the good shepherd, referring to himself, will lay down his life for the sheep. So when Jesus said, feed my sheep, and now we're talking about comparing ourselves, and if comparison is all about pride, pride goes in the opposite direction of the job that Jesus gave to Peter, Right? And when it comes down to it, Jesus redefines this whole edifice or this whole spectrum of what it means to be successful. Because as Americans, we are obsessed with winning. Now, I love winning. It's just, I'm I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan, so I'm not used to that. But we love winning. But here's the thing winning is so subjective. 
I mean, what do we want to win at? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. Americans, we want to win at status. But that's subjective. How much status do you need to be fulfilled? Right? Because there's always going to be someone out there in the world that's going to have more status than you. Right? We, we, we want to win by having maybe more affluence. Like, I have to have money and wealth. The problem is, is how much do you need to be fulfilled? Because the love of money is the root of all evil. And there's always going to be someone out there that's going to have more money. Or what about beauty or attractiveness? Americans were obsessed with that. There's always going to be some, someone more attractive out there. Unfortunately, actually fortunately, there's not one redhead that's more attractive than me. So anyways, kidding, kidding. Most redheads are more attractive than me. But we're obsessed with status and achievement and attractiveness. Jesus isn't obsessed with that at all. Jesus, man, his definition of winning is not winning in those categories. His definition of winning is, did you love well? Loving well determines whether you're great or not in the kingdom of Jesus. Success is redefined by Jesus. Your goal in life is not to have like five Jaguars, and if you have that, there's nothing wrong with that. Your goal in life is not to accumulate a billion dollars. And if you get that, that's great. We're not going to say there's nothing wrong with that. Please tithe on that. Anyways, let's move on. (laughs) Your goal in life is not to make it, right? Make it to that next level. We talk about next level, next level, next level. Jesus always goes in the opposite direction. We're talking about next level, like we're going up. Jesus said, no, you got to go down. It's not about going to the next level, becoming the next megastar, superstar. And if you become a superstar, that's great. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But our definition as followers of Jesus is completely different than how the world sees and defines success. Success is whether you love your kids or not. Success is about success for me is not growing this church to 10,000 people. And I believe one day we'll have a church of 10,000 people. But if we never get there, that has nothing to do with whether my wife and I are successful. We are successful if we love you with all of our hearts. I am successful, my wife and I are successful if we actually... Don't, don't judge me, but if we put our kids before the ministry. I'm not successful if I craft moving rhetorical messages that whip us up into an emotional state. I am successful if I go home this week and I love my kids, I coach them, I pray with them, I'm with them, and I love them unconditionally. And I go home and I love my wife unconditionally. Come on, we are successful if we love well. And if you get the other stuff, great. But the problem is, is that we've marginalized loving well and we've obsessed over winning when it comes to achievement and status and all this kind of stuff. And homie, don't play that. That's not, it's never meant to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus. So pride Pride is at the root of comparison, as is ingratitude. Let me just say just a few thoughts, and then I'm going to pray for you. Ingratitude goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We find in Genesis 1 and 2, where God comes, he makes Adam and Eve. And you've heard me speak on this before. In the Hebrew, he he comes to them and says, "Um, I want you to eat, eat. Everyone say, eat, eat. Do we have any eaters here? Do we have any vegans? Yes. It's a bad joke. I do that every other Sunday. I know my wife can't. She, does, she despises it. Anyways, if you love to eat, you're going to love this because God comes to Adam and Eve and says, eat, eat. Basically, I want you to imagine uh, a whole forest before Adam and Eve. Forest or trees. We'll call it trees. A grove of trees filled with luscious fruit. And God said, you can have all of that. I mean, how many trees? Thousands and thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of trees. Adam and Eve, you could have that. But then God says, you can't just have this one tree. You can have all of this. 
So God's relationship with Adam and Eve, God's relationship with creation is defined not by scarcity, but by abundance. Get of all the trees in the world, permission, permission, permission. You go for it. You take that apple, Adam, and you eat it good. Right? Come on. Like, this is amazing. Take the food that I give you and have the time of your life. But God says you just can't have this one tree. That's my property, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, we'll talk about this in about a year. Man, it's God's, sorry, it's God's definition of good and evil. God is the one who ultimately will decide what's good and not, what's good or not. However, Adam and Eve, they tragically get things skewed and they forget about all this abundance and they obsess over this one tree that they can't have. Why? Well, they actually, they're comparing themselves with God. They're like, what? I mean, you, we can't have this tree? And God's saying, what what are you talking about, guys? You can have all of this. You just can't have this. So they're comparing themselves, and comparison is about ingratitude. They're not thankful for all the luscious apples. They just want what they can't have. And so they allow their life to be defined by what they can't have. So at the heart of human corruption, man, it's, it's ingratitude. They're not thankful. And so they choose, because they want to define good and evil for themselves, they choose to eat of this tree. And it has catastrophic consequences on God's beautiful creation. Ingratitude, ingratitude lies at the heart of human corruption. Let me just say this in Romans 1.20. For his invisible attributes, Paul is writing about justification. He says, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile. They didn't give thanks to God. That's all they did. They they didn't honor him. They didn't worship him. They didn't give thanks. And because they didn't do that, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Isn't that interesting? All because they did not practice thanksgiving. It opened the door to human corruption and idolatry. We now have a downward spiral kind of effect in Romans chapter 1, where now Adam and Eve, uh, the first humans, all of us, if we collude with not practicing uh, thanksgiving and honoring God, guess what happens to us? Uh, We go towards uncreation. We become less than human. We become futile in our thinking. Our minds are darkened. We begin to think funny thoughts like, I should be an Oakland Raider fan. Oh, my God. Oh. Right? We are, our thinking, our heart is twisted when we don't practice Thanksgiving. Man, I think it's impossible. I think it's impossible um, for us to not enter into the joy that God has for us if we're practicing gratitude. I really really believe that. And I think the reason why it's difficult for some people to um, practice Thanksgiving is because they don't realize that everything that they have is a gift. Everything you have is a gift. You didn't earn it. Come on. Are you the reason for your own existence? Did you cleverly bring yourself out of non-existence into existence? This is the conversation that I have with my, with my boys in particular in the car when they say they use the most selfish word ever, boring. They're like, I am bored. Can you turn on the TV? I'm like, sons of mine. Boring, number one, is selfish. You have oxygen in your lungs, right? You have knees, elbows, and toes, right? And you have moppy hair, but I love it right? You have all this stuff. 
Your existence is contingent. They're like, Dad, what does that mean? Like, just pay attention. There was a time when you did not exist. It, kids, I mean, go back. Once you, real, once you come to this point of, like, developed consciousness, like at three or four, like, I, I just marvel over it. Like, you would think that they, they would come to the point, like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I exist. <laughs> and they should be losing their minds. No, no, that doesn't happen. They act as if they've existed for thousands of years. You owe me this, you owe me this, you owe me this. I'm like, I don't owe you anything. You don't earn anything in this life. Come on. Everything that you have is not because you're smart. It's not just because you man, you figured out the system and you trick people or because you're attractive. The reason why you have stuff or any goodness in your life is because it's a gift from God. God was the one who created you. He scripted your life. And when you understand that, that man, that just transitioned into like this eruption of thanksgiving. So, I, I mean, I could, I could talk so much more, but um, I want to pray here in about three minutes. So what can we do? How do we give up comparison? It's poison. Don't even go there. And there's so many different things, so many different practices that we could talk about today. But one thing I want to talk about and just emphasize over the next seven days that I would like you to do, and I think this is a solution to comparison. This is how we follow Jesus. I want you to practice specific gratitude for the next seven days. I want you to be specific with the things that God has done for your life. When you do that, it withers complaint. It withers this inadequacy. It withers, it goes to the root of, oh, I'm better than that person. It, it withers human corruption so that you can be free to be who God has called you to be. It helps you, it sets you free from that postmodern intellectual movement where we just assume that authority is located in how I feel. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. No, when you're thankful, you realize that nothing that you have is deserved. Nothing that you have is earned. It's all a gift from God. God's in charge of your life. Come on. He's not riding roughshod over you. He's not forcing you to be anything. Yes, he created a world of free, authentic beings. He's not going to force you to be who he's called you to be, but he will persuade you because this is how God has created you. If we practice specific thanksgiving, man, it sets us free to be who God wants us to be. So how do we do that? Well, this is what I do. You could do this. You don't have to do this. Uh, every morning, what, what I try to do when I wake up in the morning, pretty early, let's say at 5 o'clock in the morning, everything's disoriented. I f when you wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning, it's an ungodly hour. No one should be up at that time, but I've, I've, just, I've made a decision. I'm going to wake up early so I can practice just being in the presence of Jesus. So it takes me about a good 20 minutes to get the funk out of my soul, out of my soul, right? It's like, where am I? Why am I driving to Starbucks at 5? This is crazy. So this is what I do. Um, I'll just start quoting scripture. I think in order for us to really thank God, we have to be formed in scripture. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So how can you be thankful if you don't know what God's word says about you? Come on. I know this is basic stuff, but this is, ah, this should set you free. So what I do is I'll just wake up in the morning and I'll just quote Psalm 33. I thank you, Father, that the universe is drenched in your affectionate satisfaction. I thank you that your steadfast love fills the entire universe and also fills my body. It also, man, it's in my life. And then I'll, I'll go to Psalm 36 and I'll just declare that God's love is oceanic. It's astronomic. It reaches to the heavens. So if it can reach to the heavens, it can reach into my life and transform my circumstances. And even if my circumstances aren't transformed, I know God's love can change my heart so that I can reflect his love back into those stinking circumstances. 
And then I'll go to Psalm 136. I love this. God's faithful covenant love never quits. God never gets tired. This is what I tell myself. Even though I'm tired, even though my love is incomplete, even though I feel inadequate this morning, God, I thank you that you never give up. You never get sick. You never take a vacation. You're not in the cosmos, like, ready to, like, rain down fire on my head. I thank you, Father, that your love endures forever. It's indefatigable. You never get tired. And then I tell, and at this time my faith is building because I'm forming my mind in the scripture. I go to Psalm 145. I love it. Lord, I just thank you, Father, you're generous to a fault. You're slow to anger. Psalm 86, right? Exodus 34, Psalm 103. I have to have scripture in my life. And so I quote it, and then I tell, I, I, and then I declare, God, I thank you that you lavish favor on creation. I thank you, Father, that your loving acts are the trademark of your kingdom. Love is not just a characteristic of yours. It is you are love. You are love. It's not just something you have. You are the definition of love. So then once I've built my faith, I then move into, I get out of general Thanksgiving. General Thanksgiving doesn't work. Like, oh God, I thank you for three years ago. You did, you did something. Thank you for your love. No. I tell myself probably every other day, the most, one of the most remarkable stories of my wife and I's life. I remember 10 years ago, my wife and I, we, uh, we got married and we tried for five years to have kids. We couldn't have kids. Went to the doctor. The doctor said, well, we don't know what's wrong. Uh, and then we felt in that time that God was stirring in our heart, working in our heart to adopt. And so we went through the adoption process. Uh, we submitted our profile. God just put something in our heart, mainly my wife's heart. And then my heart changed. I followed my wife. And so we were in the process of adopting for about a year and a half. Well, let me just say this really quick. Growing up, I, I always wanted brothers. I wanted two brothers. But I had two sisters, and they're wonderful, and they're beautiful, and amazing absolutely amazing. But there was something in my heart that I just wanted brothers. I loved the competition. I wanted to dominate a little bro, right? Kick him. Now you know where my sons get it, right? And I remember when we first got married. Now fast forward, this would have been 10 years ago. I felt like you might not believe that God can do this, but I believe God can do this. He spoke to me that we would have twin boys. And I felt like the Holy Spirit said, I'm giving you the desire of your heart. You wanted brothers, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something better. I'm gonna give you twin boys, 10 years ago. So we're in this adoption process. We went through heartache after heartache after heartache. We were rejected and rejected. We thought we were going to adopt um, uh, uh, twin girls and that, that kind of fell through. And then on a really good Friday, five years ago, almost six years ago, uh, I was writing a philosophy paper. We were at uh, Jimmy John's. That's why Wesley loves Jimmy John's. Wesley loves Jimmy John's. This is, it's a revelation, people. This is why he loves Jimmy John's. We're at Jimmy John's. My wife gets a phone call and says, hey, this is from our social worker. Hey, this is going to sound crazy, but a mom just came in. Uh, she has twin boys. We didn't know if they were born. We didn't know any of the circumstances. She said, can we show your profile? So we said, absolutely. Twin boys? I'm like, are you kidding me? This, we, we had not given up, but we just weren't thinking about adopting. We just went through so much heartache. So that day, about six hours went by. We told our friends. We told our family members. We were excited. I was trying to manage my expectations. I didn't want my heart to be broken again. And then six hours later, we get a phone call from our social worker saying, congratulations, Kristen Kell. You have twin boys at the hospital. Can you come and get them? God is the fulfiller of promises. And when I practice thanksgiving, I'm not like, oh, God, I, I thank you that you love me. No, what I tell God every day when I weep my face off, when I'm on my prayer drive, is I thank you, Father, that six years ago you answered our prayer. And I have the two most beautiful boys. And then a year later, are you kidding me? You give us the most beautiful little girl named Whitney Opal Wild, our little princess. And when I 
remember and when I recount how good God has been in a specific way, it sets me free from complaint and inadequacy and failure. Come on. And it opens the future. And I realize, God, if you can do that six years ago, you can help me through what I'm going through right now. If you could do that back then, you could certainly do that in the future. But our thanksgiving as followers of Jesus, man, 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 it's not about us. It's not about status. It's not about getting more money. Man, thanksgiving is tied inextricably to the glory of God. Thanksgiving leads to glory, not our glory, God's glory. And when I thank God, it gets my eyes off myself and my circumstances and my difficulty, and I put my eyes on him. Follow me. What does that mean? Fix your eyes on me. Trust me. Because I'm going to make you a new man, Peter. I'm going to turn you right side up, and you're going to lead this church. And people for centuries and millennia will talk about you. Could you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, we thank you for your grace. In this, in this moment, we repent first of our pride. And I know we all have a proclivity to do this. We just repent for comparing ourselves. Maybe some of us are on different spectrums of the comparison game. Maybe some of us are feeling inadequate today. We feel like we failed. And maybe we've set a standard that you haven't set for us. I just ask you would come and demolish that, Jesus. That's whatever that might be. You would set us free so we can look up, not look down, but look up and see ourselves through your perfect love. And if there's some in here, and I know there's many of us, I'm sure we all could repent of this, where we thought we're better than other people, or we've, we've played that pride thing, where we've compared ourselves and we've allowed ourselves to play another script. Lord, I just ask that you would forgive us today. I see you would move in our heart as you would make us new, as you would give us fresh vision. Lord, as we practice giving up comparison this week, we thank you, Father, for filling our hearts with thanksgiving and gratitude and renewed hope. Father, we thank you that you love us to the very end. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.